If you would, uh, take out your Bibles with me and turn them to the passages that were just read, Isaiah 9 and Colossians 1. We're going to spend some time there this morning. And as we go to the Lord's Word, let's go to Him in prayer, asking His blessing upon our time. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, we need the light of Your Word, not only this morning and now, but every moment of every day of our lives. Would You be pleased, Father, now by your Holy Spirit to meet your people as we are gathered to hear you speak to us through your word, your word that is true, your word that does not fail, your word that has been given so that we would know what we are to believe about you and what you have asked of your people. Father, may your word before us now be our rule, your Holy Spirit be our teacher and your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in the preparing for worship email that I sent uh, earlier in the week, uh, because of where we're at in the establishment of the church, I thought it was important to revisit a sermon series that we did actually a few years ago on uh, the government of the church. And uh, for most of you here sitting here, you weren't here. So it'll be new, and for those few of you that were here, hopefully uh, hearing it again, uh, slightly different in places, will be helpful to you as well. You know, finally, I've included the um, article, that short excerpt of the article on church government at an appropriate time, and I hope you will uh, take some time later today and read it. It is an excellent excerpt talking about how Uh, Church government, how the church is led, is an important topic. It is extremely important, yet it's often ignored. Nobody thinks about it. But for the next few weeks, we're going to consider how Jesus Christ runs his church, what church government is and why it matters. Um, We've done series in the past um, on grace and a series on peace. And now this is really a series on Presbyterian. We've done a series or two on the church to understand and appreciate, as it were, our name. Now, unless you've been somewhere else lately and not watched TV or gone on, online or, or driven around, you would, um, it, you'd be hard-pressed to miss the fact that we are in an election cycle. You know, the 2016 election started, what, 2013, 2012? Um, It it seems to dominate the news. And what's interesting, I found, is the money that is being spent on elections is high. And yet, voter turnout is low. In fact, in 2012, in our presidential election, 53% of eligible voters Voted Children, that means that for every two people that could vote, one person voted and one person didn't take the time to vote. And yet in 2012, in these midterm elections, excuse me, 2014, just uh, last year, only 36.4% of eligible voters voted. The lowest turnout since 1942 when the U.S. was in the early days of the Second World War. There's ignorance and apathy in the midst of very costly 
expensive, high-priced campaigns and elections. Elections to help determine our government. Government, whether at the state level, at the national level, and indeed at the local level, affects us every day. And the same is true for the church. How the church is governed affects us every day, not just here on the Lord's Day. Church government, as I hope we will see in the next few weeks, will understand that it's not mundane or peripheral, but it's rather important and central. What the church does, her ministry, and how the church is led, her government, cannot be separated. And if the ministry of the church is really a life and death matter, you know, the aroma of Christ is of life to some and of death to others. If it's, if it's a life or death matter, then believe it or not, how the church is led, cared for, governed, is in some ways a life and death matter as well. You heard it earlier, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The government upon his shoulders. And we heard earlier from Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He being Jesus Christ. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Did you hear that in that passage from Colossians? Right in the middle, Jesus is said to be the head of the body, the church. And before it and after it is a word. And children, did you hear it? All things, all things, all things. Jesus over all. Now it's dangerous, isn't it, to use words like always and never? Y'all had those conversations at the house? Dad, you always do this. Well, probably dad doesn't always do this. Hey, Johnny, you never do this. Well, probably Johnny, that's not true. But don't we use those words? But look at scripture here. All things hold together in Christ. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whenever you see this, stop. Pay attention. What is going on? The preeminence of Jesus Christ, the head, the king, the ruler of his church. He built his church. He builds his church. He runs his church. What goes without saying should be said. Jesus is the boss. Jesus calls the shots. He's in charge. Remember after his resurrection, as he commissioned his disciples to make disciples, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think there's some presidential candidates out there in one way or another that seem to come across like that, don't they? And indeed, we view this as incredibly arrogant, don't we? Who could say something like that? 
unless it's true, unless it's absolutely true, here all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus has. And earlier in our study in Mark, we read this, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. It goes on to say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And so our series, in a word, is about how Jesus Christ runs the church, how Jesus runs his church. Um, A book that I uh, pulled off the shelf the other day uh, has an interesting title. It says, How to Run the Church. Well, that's actually not what it says because it's crossed out. And it says, How Jesus Christ Runs the Church. Do you see the difference? How to run the church? What are we supposed to do? Or recognize how Jesus really does run and rule and govern and guide his church. And we will see that unfold over the next few weeks. In this introduction to our series, we're going to consider three basic orienting principles. The what of church government. In other words, what do we mean when we say church government? The how of church government. How does church government function? How does it work? And finally, the why of church government. Maybe the most important, the why of church government. Why does it matter? What's the big deal? Why would we even take time to consider this topic? Well, let's look at the what of church government. What is the church? What is the church? The people of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's important when you think of the church, remember the church is both an organism, it's a living body whose head is Christ whose body is energized by the Holy Spirit. And it's in this fellowship that believers serve one another and encourage one another on to spiritual maturity. And it's from this fellowship that we go out into the world in Jesus' name. In other words, the church as an organism moves in toward one another and it moves out into the world. The church is an organism. She's a living Creation of the Lord. But the church is not only an organism, the church is an organization. It's a visible assembly with a structure. We have a post office box. We meet in a building. It is a visible structure. Why do we have to be like that? Well, it's because the church is in the world. The church is in the world. Does anybody know the name of our denomination? Most people think it's the Presbyterian Church of America. Majority of time I see it out there is Presbyterian Church of America. Guess what? It's not the Presbyterian Church of America. It's the Presbyterian Church in America. And that is big time important. And I'm thankful that our founders made that nuance. Because Paul writes the church in Ephesus. Not the church of Ephesus, as if Ephesus could somehow co-opt and compromise the church. No, my friends, we are part of a small church in America. In America. Well, what is church government? It's the structure, the system that governs the church. And 
Pardon me, but this will sound just like a little bit of a lesson or a lecture. We will spend, in particular, in the next few weeks, much more time directly uh, coming from the scriptures. But this is kind of a a church history uh, lesson. There's the hierarchical form of church government, the Episcopal church government that's top down. And we see that in the Roman Catholic church, the Episcopal church, and the Methodist church, where you have bishops, you have pope and cardinals and bishops and priests and you have um, uh, uh, bishops and district superintendents and, and ministers and pastors. It's top down. But there's also the congregational model that we see in most Baptist churches and Bible churches. Many non-denominational churches are one person, one vote kind of churches, a democratic um, means of governing the church. But then you have the Presbyterian form of church government. It's representative. And what would be a good example of the Presbyterian form of church government? The Presbyterian church, yes. And interestingly, you can see in the early days of the United States uh, becoming a nation and the influence of the Presbyterian uh, system of church government in one way of possibly why we have separate branches of government and we have checks and balances. Because just like in our own federal government, you have different branches. Also in our Presbyterian church government, you have different church courts to provide and protect the church from anarchy on the one hand and tyranny on the other. Presbyterian church government moderates the, between two extremes. The one extreme is anything goes. Anything and everything goes. Or... The other extreme, my way alone goes. The what of church government, how it's led. Well, how does church government work? How exactly is the church governed? Well, a church has to have power or authority to do its job. A church government has to have that kind of power or authority. Well, what do we believe about church power? First, Its nature is spiritual. The church has spiritual power. Churches tend to err in two directions. Too much authority, you can see that in the Roman Catholic Church, or no real authority at all, no legitimate power. It's only a voluntary association. Well, why does the church have authority in the first place? In what sphere does it operate? How is it different than other God-ordained Uh, Authority, like the civil government, as we read in Romans. Well, the church's mission is spiritual, and therefore its means are spiritual. The church uses persuasion, not coercion. It's the word of God, not the sword of man. Authority is, re- is rooted in the revealed will of God as found in the scripture. And there's three ways that church power becomes visible. And we see this in our church. To declare its doctrine. In other words, this is what we believe. That's why we have a confession of faith. This is what we believe. To also, we have um, church power is seen to be visible in its ordering of worship, in its administration of the sacraments. Why do we do what we do in worship, for example? And also to discipline its members. And when you hear discipline, think systematic training. Any of you current or former athletes? 
Children, do you like sports? Do you like to wrestle and run? Do you like to play organized games? Well, do you just show up on game day? No, you practice. You practice throughout the week. And that's what we do as a church. We practice week after week after week. There's the preaching, there's the teaching, there's the fellowship, there's the one anothering. We see that the church disciplines its members when, when uh, people make professions of faith and are admitted to the Lord's table and become communicant members. We see it in pastoral counseling and care. And at times, we see it in corrective discipline. For as we know in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for re- reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's for training, absolutely. It's for teaching, undeniably. It's also for reproof, for correction. God's word helps us get back on the path as it's exercised through the proper spiritual power of the church. Well, first, its nature is spiritual. And second, its source is Jesus Christ. There is no authority or power in the church itself, nor in the people, but directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Matthew 28, all authority. Jesus' followers are given and granted power by Jesus himself to do what? To gather disciples, to administer the sacraments, and to teach his word authoritatively. Yet the whole time, Jesus remains the only head of the church. We saw that in Colossians 1. You can see it in Ephesians 1 as well. But third, there are laws and limits to the church's power. And those are found in the word of God. Because the will of Christ as expressed in the Bible regulates the use of the church's power granted to us by Christ. Christ's word, in other words, provides both the warrant for and the limit of the church's power over God's people. This is important because God's word tells us when to act and when to not act. When to um, speak, as it were, and when to not speak. You know, all of us have taste in clothing, don't we? I mean, we pick out certain outfits. But if one of you guys wanted to go out and purchase an orange leisure, leisure suit, okay? You get it on sale somewhere, a great deal, and wear it to church, guess what? I can't say anything about it. Now, taste may say something about it, and other people may say, but the church cannot say, leave and change your clothes. But after church, if I'm talking with someone and I overhear a conversation about a man making arrangements to meet a woman who's not his wife later in the day, you better believe the church has a responsibility. You better believe the church has power to act. Christian love demands it. Christian love does not demand you change your leisure suit. So there are laws and limits in church power and those are found in the word of God. And fourth, those entrusted with church power are everyone and the church officers. In our book of church order, we read this in chapter 3. 
The power which Christ has committed to his church rests in the whole body. The rulers and those rules constituting a spiritual commonwealth. This power as exercised by the people extends to the choice of those officers whom he has appointed in his church. In other words, who has power? Everyone has power in general and church officers in particular. All church power is granted to the officers through the call of Jesus Christ, which comes at the consent of the church. Churches nominate, call, elect, and ordain their own officers. You've heard the expression, children, no taxation without representation. Well, Presbyterian church government adheres to that. There is no church leadership. There is no church um, authority in the way of officers that aren't first elected by the congregation. And so Christ visibly governs his church through his word, through his word and by his spirit as he calls men to serve as officers and gives them as good gifts to the church, we read in Ephesians. Church officers in the PCA are twofold, elders and deacons, and both Elders and deacons represent Jesus, one in his rule and the other in his service. Elders represent oversight or rule, and in our understanding, there are two orders to one class. There are ruling elders, like Stan is a ruling elder, and there are teaching elders, and I am a teaching elder. And both ruling elders and teaching elders serve as shepherds of the church. The elders are the shepherds who know the sheep, who feed the sheep, the word of God, who lead the sheep, who protect the sheep. And deacons represent service or mercy. They lead the church in service as, as it were, the chief servants of the church. Christ governs through the officers of the church, through the courts of the church. We are not only a confessional denomination with a confession of faith that is written and open to public scrutiny, but we are also a connectional church. There is a local session made up of the ruling and teaching elders at a local congregation. And then all of the churches in a particular area constitute a regional presbytery. And then all the presbyteries constitute a general assembly at the national level. And because of these courts, local, regional, and national, you have review and control. You can have people complain, and their complaints can be heard, and people can appeal. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it, for those of you familiar with our own court system. And as a church court, whether a session, a presbytery, or a general assembly, they have, they have the power to declare only what God has already said in his word. Because the power of the church is only ministerial and declarative. And we don't come up with anything new or original. We're merely proclaiming what God has already said in his word. So Christ runs his church through his spirit and his word as it is exercised by all people in general, but especially the officers. Okay, so what? 
nice lecture, but where's the payoff? What's the end game? Why is this important? The why of church government. Well, let's step back and ask ourselves, why do we have a government in the first place? Why not just let everybody rule their own lives? What's the purpose of government? Well, let's think for a moment about our national or our federal government. Children, in the early history of the United States, there was a document that was written and ratified, and it was a document that helped establish the framework for how this country was to be governed and how the government was to work. Do you remember the name of that document? What is it? Okay, anybody else? What is that document? Hey, one of the older children got it. The Constitution, yes, in 1787. And in the preamble to our Constitution, that brief um, paragraph that, that shows the fundamental purposes and guiding principles of our government, it says this, quote, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So what do we see here? We see the goal of the government, a government that Lincoln said is what? Of the people, by the people, and for the people. What is the goal of government? To establish, defend, and promote what? Peace. Peace. Let's go back and revisit Isaiah 9 and Colossians 1. Verse 7 of Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. When Jesus' government, his reign, his rule increases, peace increases. Peace, not just the absence of conflict, but wholeness, completeness. It's what it's the way things should be and indeed one day will be. Peace, absolute completeness and wholeness. We see it in part now. We see glimpses now. One day we will see it in full. Peace, peace. And look with me at Colossians 1. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, that is Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What did Jesus come to bring? Peace. It's the result of his work. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of redemption. Peace with God, we see the vertical aspect. And then peace with one another, we see the horizontal aspect as we saw last week when we looked at the king being the prince of peace. 
Brothers and sisters, unless you are at peace with God, there is no way you can be at peace with one another. The church is made up of people who are at peace with God and who are learning to be at peace with one another. Those who are at peace with God recognize that in themselves they are much worse than they think they are. And yet in Christ they are more loved and cherished and accepted than they could ever imagine. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has not only built his church, but he continues to build his church. And not only that, he runs the church. Does that sound familiar to those of you who have been looking at uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism with me? Creation and providence. Jesus creates, Jesus rules. He runs. He's the maker. He's the maintainer. We've been talking for the last few minutes about Jesus being the boss of this church. And by God's grace and favor, he will ever more increasingly be the boss of this church. Because not all bosses are bad. Jesus is the one faithful and true boss who does nothing but good to those under his care. But the question has got to be asked as well. Who's your boss? Who runs your life? Who calls the shots in your life? Bob Dylan said it well, you got to serve somebody. Most of us, until we're rescued by Jesus, serve ourselves. And to be sure, there are moments when we revert back to our old habits. But a Christian is many things, but a Christian is no less than someone who has Jesus as their boss. He's the new king in town. He's the new ruler in town. And the church, if the church's boss is Jesus, then all of the Christians that are gathered and are part of the church are, as it were, being bossed by Jesus as well. We've looked at who's the boss. Next week, we'll look at Jesus, our shepherd, then the work, the person and work of the elder, Jesus, our servant, the person and work of the deacon, how to recognize elders and deacons. Not recognize as in honor them, but how to spot them, how to, to, to see who those men are. We'll look at church government and the Great Commission. And finally, for some of you, this might be the best one at all, the end of church government. Where's it all headed? And so despite what the campaign speeches and the ads say, the real issue among us today is not big government small government, uh, less government, more government. Rather, the issue is good government, healthy, biblically directed and balanced church government because it's a blessing in the lives of God's people. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to the church, government is not the problem. Government is the solution as it serves to promote peace 
by pointing people to how Jesus cares for his church through both his rule and his service. It helps us all remember that Jesus is the boss. But it's also very important to remember that when Jesus set up his government, his government that continues to increase, it wasn't done on the cheap. It came, his campaign came at an unbelievably high cost. It cost him his life. Brothers and sisters, in this campaign, in this rule, Jesus got the curse that you and I deserve so that we could get the blessing that he alone deserved. Brothers and sisters, rejoice that for the Christian, they have a boss like Jesus. There's no one like him. He's the king. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do indeed give good gifts to your church. And one of your good gifts is how the rule of Jesus is exercised by men called and gifted to exercise leadership in both rule and in service. Father, we pray and ask that you indeed would continue to watch over this fledgling new church, that you would provide for us uh, the shepherds and the servants that we need to both be a blessing inwardly to one another, but also outwardly to the world. Father, may you be pleased as your people submit to your gracious and wise and powerful and kind and merciful government. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.